Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and we have a special guest, Trevor Burris. Trevor is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies. His research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, legal and political philosophy, and legal history. Recently, I came upon an article that was published on the Foundation for Economic Education website uh, that Trevor wrote, Why the Gun Debate Never Ends. And we have him on today to talk about the gun control debate. Trevor, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. One of the things that, you know, being part of Facebook and thinking of myself as a as a reasonable person, uh, I get pretty disconcerted over the the debate on gun violence. Uh, you know, the newsfeed is inundated with so many so many false statements about gun control or about gun rights or about history or about you know you name it. Everybody's everybody's probably a little bit wrong on anything they post about <laughs> about gun control. Um, and so I wanted to have you on because you address problems that both gun rights people and gun control advocates uh, don't, they're just problematic parts of their argument. I find that arguing with people on Facebook is pretty much futile, but you've spoken with other people outside of social media, I'm sure. And so what is your assessment of the current conversation going on out there? Well, my first assessment is definitely do not argue with people on Facebook. That's a it's a pretty good good general principle. Um, but I, I've done professional gun debates in a variety of contexts at law schools and universities and other sort of public policy events, and I've tried to make them into productive conversations. And and as you mentioned, it becomes increasingly difficult for such conversations to be productive, especially because gun control is becoming more of a of an identity politics issue, meaning it identifies what side you're on and a virtue signaling issue and there isn't much discussion about what actually are the problems inherent in the gun control debate and the inevitable sort of trade-offs and bad arguments that are made by both sides. And the piece you're referring to, I wrote that in response originally to the Democrat sit-in. This happened after Orlando where they wanted to suddenly put uh, every person on the terror watch list. They wanted to put them uh, onto a no-gun buy list. And it was it, and so and, and then they wouldn't do it. And then the Democrats, in response, had some sort of sit-in where they, they all sat on the floor of the House for all night until we fix gun violence. And that, that issue itself is the one that really gets me. Where there's especially on on the left on the gun control side, there's this idea that gun violence is easily fixable, and the only thing that we we is keeping it from happening is the NRA or just people who like dead kids or people who prefer shooting over dead kids. I mean, you can see it all over Facebook. And, and I think that that is fundamentally misguided. It, mis- it misconstrues some basic facts about gun violence in our country. Uh, and it focuses on the wrong things and it ignores the inevitable trade-offs that must occur if you're going to try and quote unquote end gun violence, which by itself is an interesting problem because I, 
I, I don't have a problem with gun violence per se. I have a problem with violence, which is some of these questions where we say, you know, would, would other types of violence go up if, if certain types of guns were banned? Uh, and, and is there a unique problem with gun violence? And there might be some, but these are the kind of conversations we have to have that are usually usually not had. You know, I posted your article on a Facebook group that was it was mostly people who are more in favor of gun control than who are in favor of gun rights, even though some people are pretty reasonable on, on in the group. But there was one person who I, you know, I looked up that person's profile and they're from Australia and they just were very adamant. Gun control works. I don't know what's wrong with you Americans. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, when, when people are that adamant, I mean, you can't really talk to them if they've already stated what they believe in that regard. Um, but is it's not so simple. And can you explain to us why it's not so simple to just say, oh, well, it worked in X country? Yeah, and Australia is a good example where, where, I mean, even if I just admit it, okay, look, I'll, I'll grant you that Australia's gun buyback program in 1996 caused all these things to, to go, to violence to go down, which is not something we should grant. Uh, uh, at most, we can probably say that the, the general trend line of violence, which had been going down in Western countries since the 90s, just continued after that. And there are still tons of illegal guns in Australia. But of course, that's a country of 20 million people, maybe 25 at this point, and very different than America. We have to talk about the American gun problem. I don't. I don't really find international comparisons that helpful, because the the methods of getting there. So someone says, "Oh, Japan doesn't have a, a gun problem," um, and and they have a probably the strictest regime of sort of outright prohibition. You have to get a license with the government, and you have to get checked every year by mental health protect by professionals, and the police will come to your house and make sure it's locked up and all these things. But they have a very different issue than we have. They do not have currently three hundred to three hundred fifty million guns just going throughout their society. Uh, in addition to them being particularly law-abiding, uh, particularly uh, sort of playing by the rules. So if you told them, hey, we're going to investigate your guns or look into them, then a, and a lot of people would probably do it. But the other issue is is that I'm quite sure, and I, th I think most people would think this is true, that if you took every gun in America and you picked them up and you airlifted them over Japan and dropped them, uh, I imagine that the violent crime rate in Japan would probably go up not at all, uh, would be my guess. It has an extremely low violent crime rate anyway, very high suicide rate, interestingly. Uh, and so that's the kind of cross-country comparison that doesn't necessarily help in the ways that, generally speaking, we shouldn't try to compare countries that are small and homogeneous and have relatively low populations with a country that is large and heterogeneous with many different parts of the country and many different cultures involved uh, and think that we can take one side of those and just apply them to us. So, I mean, I always just ask people, I so that's why I say, I'll grant, I don't want to get into an argument about the stats about Australia. I'll just say, let's say tomorrow that 90% of Americans turned in their guns in some massive act of what do you want to call it, civil obedience or responsibility. And so 90% of guns are, are turned in. Well, we still have 35 million guns in this country, uh, which is more than most Western countries. And of course, 90% would be just an astounding level of compliance that would never happen. Mm. And 35 million guns would be held mostly by people who didn't want to turn their guns in. And I imagine that a disproportionate amount of those people who didn't want to turn their guns in would be criminals. Uh, and so let's talk about the realistic uh, problem we have in America in the situation we face now. There is no magic button. And unless you want a civil liberties disaster uh, on the 
order of Japanese internment during World War II. We're not going to go door to door and take guns from people. And so let's talk about what we can do now. What you're describing seems to sound like you, you could say or grant that, okay, Australian gun control worked for Australians. J- Japanese gun control is working for Japanese culture. But we have a very different situation. Use it where heterogeneous culture. We have, you know, we could count it. We could split up 50 ways uh, to, to pick just the states, but that's not quite so clear. What do you think of the, I saw a proposal, uh, it was more just an idea of like, hey, we don't have an American gun problem. We should stop talking about it as an American problem, but start talking about it as it, you know, you know kind of divvy up things by state. You know, my, my thought on that has been, you know, in theory, and I realize it just to kind of make a point is that, you know, all but say a thousand guns in the United States could in theory be concentrated in Texas. But if the violence were happening outside Texas, then the statistic that we have the most guns in our country is meaningless. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And that's a really important point that the the distribution of gun violence in America per state is is not equal, to say the least. And it's hard to extrapolate much from those. What we do know is that the South is particularly violent in a variety of different ways. Uh, a lot of states like Vermont, which has some of the most uh, lax gun laws and the highest per capita gun ownership rates have have gun violence rates that are on par with Western Europe uh, or maybe more like Eastern Europe, New Hampshire, places like that. If you carved the South off of the United States, uh, a lot of just national crime rates would go down substantially. The the uh, imprisonment rate would go down, like a lot of things. So we don't we don't have one gun problem. We have 50 jurisdictions. We have unique things to America. America is unique in its federal structure. America is unique in its heterogeneity. America is unique in having a federal government in a, a Second Amendment, a Constitution that protects the right to keep and bear arms. But I mean, I would say even if we, even if that didn't happen, even if Heller did not decide that there was a right, an individual right to keep and bear arms, that that's not the problem. If you think guns are a problem, uh, the problem before Heller was that there were still this many guns out there, and there was gun violence unequally distributed. And what to do to quote unquote solve that uh, is is a much more complex question than anyone seems to want to discuss. Trevor, some commentators have brought up the foreign policy issue and sort of tied it to this. And as you're talking about culture and different cultures, I mean, one of the things that's unique about the United States is we have the most aggressive and expansive military presence in the world. And so what this essentially does is it sort of signals to the citizenry that, uh, you know, solving your problems through uh, bullying others around through force is an acceptable way to to get what you want. And so, I mean, do you think there's anything psychologically perhaps that uh, – where that is really more of a, a deeper source of the problem? It's not really about guns. It's more about the, the message that the, the, the government is sort of pounding down into the citizenry through its actions. What, what do you think of that? It's an interesting point. I, I would sort of balk it. Uh, extrapolating, psychologizing too much on on what uh, is causing Americans to be this way. Uh, I would just point out that the crime rate has been going down substantially since 1993, and that has been going down while guns have been going up and while we had more militaristic endeavors uh, in in Afghanistan, in the Second Iraq War, and we've been we've of course been in Afghanistan. We went to Libya. Uh, we've been droning people incessantly, but crime has been going down. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I can't really find a correlation there. But I think that you're asking a question that is that is relevant, which is why do people commit crime, and that's the one that I'm always trying to get people to think seriously about. 
when you say, well, okay, why do people commit crime? And you know, maybe it's uh, influence of American foreign policy, whatever, but, but that actually is the core of the gun control debate where you have to ask what sort of image you have of criminality and what, what's making people commit crime and in what situations would giving someone a gun uh, make them be, go from a non-criminal to a criminal. And in some other situations, giving them a gun might make them go from a less effective criminal to a more effective criminal, which is something worth discussing. But I always ask this sort of hypothetical that if you had a thousand people in a room and you gave everyone a gun and everyone knew that everyone had a gun, would the crime rate in that room go up or down? And then let's just say that those thousand people are, or however many you need to be a representative sample of the United States population. So some of them are criminals and some of them are, most of them are not criminals and some of them are marginal criminals who might commit a crime if you give them a gun. But then of course, everyone else who might be a victim has a gun. So it's not actually clear to me which way the crime rate would go. A lot of people seem very sure. A lot of people in the gun control crowd would say, oh, well, that would absolutely, that would be a shootout. That would be a, a massacre. Everyone would start shooting each other, which always sort of indicates to me that there's a theory of human nature that goes behind the gun control debate, where where if, if you think that people, a lot of people are just sort of right on the edge of criminality and the gun can push them over. And you do see this in gun control rhetoric. You see them criticizing gun owners as sort of nascent psychopaths. Or, or just the act of owning a gun demonstrates that you're ready to snap at any point. If that's what you think, then I, that would be – I can see why you want to limit guns. But it seems like a strange view of human nature to me to think that most people are, are, are ready to commit crime. And if you give them a gun, they're, they're, they will go ahead and do it. Uh, and so that, those are kind of questions. But I like your question about what kind of inputs go into society. And that, and that you, know, you can bring up violent video games and all these things, which are non-starters uh, in terms of what would make someone commit crime. In, in discussions that you've had with people who, who kind of self-admit they're in the gun control side of things and they, they just really don't like your argument or maybe they're just not convinced, uh, have you had successful conversations and at least kind of turning their ear to be like, oh, I never thought about it that way? Or I mean, what, what has worked for you in, in convincing anybody that's not already on your side? I, I have I, one event sticks out of my mind where where. I was invited to go to a, a dinner with a bunch of grad students from George, Wa George Washington University, and they were putting on dinners for public policy discussions. They get someone from one side of an issue and someone from the other side, and there were about twelve grad students. And so, me and another guy who, who I won't I won't name his name, but he's sort of a prominent gun control group, president of a prominent gun control group, uh, sat down at a table and, and kind of went back and forth and fielded questions from the from the students. And I found that to be incredibly fascinating because there wasn't really an audience there. It was a participatory discussion. And when you're not playing up to an audience and you don't have to feel that it's not being recorded and, I, and that's why I'm not telling his name and it's not it's not getting out there. It's a place where you can like actually make concessions and have more of a productive conversation. And, and I was I was very pleased by the conversation that he acknowledged that, you know, some of the things that are are really important uh, aren't discussed enough. Um, he acknowledged that he thought, for example, that defensive gun use was underreported, but then we were able to get to the to the issue of whether or not you know he thinks that defensive gun use is, is even a, a justified use of a gun. We, we were able to talk about the question of, of uh, what I call substitution, right? So that that the the fundamental question a lot of these gun control debates is is substitution effects. So I mean, if you just if you found out last year that uh, 50% of homicides were committed with black guns, and then 
Dianne Feinstein or someone goes to the floor of Congress and says, I want to ban black guns. And you say, okay, so let's say you do ban black guns. Let's say you ban black guns to the point that I will give you a magic button that will literally make them disappear like a genie did it. Does that mean that you just saved the 50% in the next year because you made black guns disappear? And of course, obviously not. I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous idea. Because criminal behavior is, is I mean, I, I'm in the Gary Becker camp. It's sort of rational behavior under most instances in the in the Gary Becker sense of rational. They're pursuing a goal and they're trying to accomplish it, whether it's robbing a bank or, or getting a drug deal or protecting themselves from a drug deal or robbing someone. And they're thinking about the tools that they need to do that effectively. And it's not that to say, oh, I really need a black gun or I can't rob someone. No, they'll get, they'll get a brown gun. And that's like the substitution effect. And so, I mean, as I said, that this conversation was productive. But I find that it's hard to have those productive conversations in public, in a public forum where, where people who have much invested in the issue feel like they can't concede points. One of the things that you brought up in your article that I hadn't thought about before as part of a leg the legitimate problem of dealing with gun violence in America is that there is a large number of people, you know, you mentioned earlier about 90% just magically give up their guns. That would be a magic trick to get 90% of people to voluntarily give up their guns because we do have a large number of people who would be unwilling to. I don't think gun control advocates take into account and I've found that somewhat effective, uh, not necessarily on Facebook, but just in discussing. It's like, hey, we you can't just take their guns. They're not going to just let you. You're going to create more violence on its own just by trying to take their guns. Like that's a legitimate problem, a legitimate hurdle, maybe would be one thing, because we're dealing with the American culture of guns, whether you think that's even that should be even or whether you think that should exist or not. That's a it's a legitimate problem. It's a fact of the world, yeah. And, and I mean, to make it even even more uh, fundamental point that the the gun debate is is a culture debate uh, in in many ways. And yes, yes. When, so if you've never seen a gun and you've never handled a gun, and maybe you've just seen them on Arnold Schwarzenegger movies or something, uh, a lot of people have an attitude that I call gun disgust, and that really is the attitude. I mean, and it's important for the word disgust in in the way that they react to it. It, it disgust is sort of a non-rational reaction. You know, so if, 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 you know, that there's a really disgusting bathroom or something disgusting happens, your, your reaction is like, Oh, I don't want to be near that. And if someone comes to you and says, well, what's the rational reason that, you know, you might get sick if you go in there, you don't want to hear those things. And that's, <clears throat> it makes it hard to have a, a rational debate. Now on the other side, you have gun owners who like guns, and then you have a different problem, which is that for many people who are in the gun control group, especially if they have gun disgust, uh, the fact that you like guns or a person likes guns, likes hunting, likes shooting, feels protected by guns, is sort of completely irrelevant to them in weighing the costs of gun control. And this comes up in a lot of situations. To make an analogy here, uh, if you're talking about uh, anti-smoking campaigns and someone says, you know, well, you know, what's the cost of banning cigarettes or making cigarettes really expensive? It's like, well, one of the costs is that people really like smoking. Uh, that that's a cost that people like smoking. But if you say, well, I don't care if people like smoking or they're just addicted or it's stupid that they like that, then you won't do your sort of basic welfare economics where you take people's preferences into account. You'll diminish their preferences and say they don't matter. This happens a lot in the gun control debate where you hear this, you hear, well, what, you know, why would people want to own these military style weapons of war and all this stuff? What's the cost of banning them? And part of it is, is that they just simply think that if you like owning guns and if you want an AR-15, 
or something like that, then you might as well be into bear baiting or dog fighting or something like that. And so you say, well, what's the cost of, you know, banning dog fighting? I say, well, I like dog fighting. I say, well, yeah, you shouldn't. That's a stupid thing to like. And so <laughs> there's no, there's no costs whatsoever to gun control. So that gun, the gun, the culture debate that you kind of mentioned, it's, it's deeper too. It's, 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 it's simply not acknowledging that people like these things that other people find grotesque. Well, and the emotional argument is the emotional level is so high because we tend to only have these discussions after something like a mass shooting uh, happens. And it often takes place on social media. And so we get mad at each other about that. But even if we're having civil conversation outside of it, it you're right. The calculation doesn't happen. I, I had someone ask me, I don't want to know what you think of this. You know, all oh, these children, you know, we're, we're yeah, you know, America. She's from Canada. Uh, the person I was speaking to is from Canada. She's like, I just, I just feel for your country, and I'm like, well, okay, that's cool. I'm like, I, I don't want gun violence either. And she's kind of like, but what do you have to lose to to simply ban the things that are making violence happen? Or I think I forget the way she said it, but the whole the, the 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 crux of it was, well, what do you have to lose by taking away these guns? Yeah, exactly, and that and that that demonstrates that, and that's why. You know, one of the things that that irks some of the gun control advocates, and, and, and there's two parts, is the defensive gun use uh, point, and and that one, you know, seems less like a preference that that people use guns to defend themselves mm-hmm. all the time, and that seems less like a preference than a than a basic human right, and so you you see that that conversation gets a little bit more hairy sometimes where people try and say, oh, no, there isn't that many uses of defensive guns, and that that's a bunch of of literature on that, but uh, even to that point. Um, for, and I kind of alluded to it before, when you tell people, when I've been in gun debates where to say, look, um, what's the cost? I mean, aside from, let's just say, okay, let's just say it's stupid people like guns. I'll, okay. I'll grant you that. Uh, but, but what is How about this? That it seems likely from the literature, there's 14 big peer reviewed studies on this. And it seems likely that Americans defend themselves from crime between one and 1.5 million times per year. Uh, it could be as high as 2.5 million. The highest one that I know of is 2.5 million. The lowest is 100,000. That's a government study. But but they all kind of end up, end up sitting around 1 to 1.5 million times per year. And and you tell that to a gun control person. And to be honest, although they, they have to kind of deal with that point, um, they find it to be absolutely monstrous that you would – you would want to pour more fuel on the fire, right? That, 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 that even if someone's defending themselves with guns, this is not the world that we want to live in. We don't want to live in the Wild West. That, that's not, a, that's not a, something to shoot for, it's, uh, pun intended. We want to live in a world where <clears throat> people aren't defending themselves with guns. And the reason they're defending themselves with guns is because other people have guns. And your solution to this is more guns? That's absolutely crazy. So they don't even actually think that the defensive gun use is that good of argument either. And aside from thinking it's not that high, which uh, is a little bit upsetting to me because this is the real world reality of people, particularly uh, uh, people in high crime neighborhoods or disproportionately minority uh, who have to defend themselves many times a year with guns or friends of mine, women who have to walk across from the, from their house to the Metro in DC in a kind of sketchy part of DC. And they're, they're, it's very difficult to have a gun there and they might be five, one, 110 pounds. And, and the gun is the great equalizer there. That's the sort the irony of the, of the, Gun control. It's not irony. The paradox of the gun control debate is that the thing that makes a gun good for killing, which is the ability to project force over a distance uh, and to shoot accurately and reliably, 
uh, is also the thing that makes it good for self-defense. You can project force over distance and it can shoot accurately and reliably. And when you're talking about the defensive gun use, you have to put yourself in the situation where you can, you know, I mean, I, I like the magic button situation all the time. Where So imagine my friend walking across uh, the streets of D.C. at night and she has a gun for defensive gun use. And then the criminal who's stalking her has a gun also uh, and he's planning on robbing her. Now you get to push the magic button and take the guns away from both of them. If you do that, who is now in the in the relatively worse off situation? Because that criminal, especially if he's a big man, can easily rob her with her fists and 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 might very well and probably is willing to do so. Whereas you have completely stripped her of any ability to defend herself due to her size and like and temperament. And so in that situation, he can still rob her. Uh, and of course, about 45% of robberies in America are just with strong arm tactics, uh, uh, you know, brute force kind of stuff. He can still rob her, but she, without the gun, but she has completely lost her ability to defend herself. Now, that's a real world situation that that could happen if you take away people's defensive guns, where it doesn't actually stop the criminal, but it stops the defensive gun use. The next question is, uh, so I think anyone has to acknowledge that that's, that's a cost and that it will occur. But the next question is, because we're doing public policy here, is how, how common is that? How often is that? Is that a normal situation? Or are criminals willing to commit crime with without guns more than people are being stripped of their right to self-defense uh, when you take away their guns. Trevor, to take this back to another one of those kind of parallel policy discussions, um, you know, it, it, when we look at like statistics from uh, Detroit or Chicago or Baltimore, where there's a, a lot of uh, gun murders pretty much on a, on a steady basis, you know, I wonder how much of that actually uh, comes from the drug war and the economic depression that government policies have fostered down on the inner cities. Um, so my, my question is, number one, is there any research into, into that? How much of these, these sort of recurring shootings in these increasingly violent cities, particular cities like, like Chicago and, and Baltimore and so forth, uh, it is related to uh, poverty-stricken areas, which we could tie back to they're in poverty mostly because of government uh, or, or the drug war or other things like that. What, what does the research actually show? Uh, it's a great question, and, and you've hit on something that, that probably the most aggravating thing at the end of the day about the, the gun policy, gun control debate to me, which is that we, we tend to not have debates about other things. Uh, I often you know, wonder, because I personally do not own guns. Uh, I mean, well, it's a, I own a black powder pirate pistol because uh, I'm a history buff. So a muzzle-loading black powder flintlock pirate pistol. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine how much a criminal breaking in my house would laugh at that. But, I mean, so I don't really like guns that much. I don't like hunting. I don't like killing things. I didn't come out of sort of a gun family. I'm not trying to protect my own guns. I got really obsessed with this stuff because I was trying to figure out the nature of this debate and, and who was right and who was wrong and read all the books and said, oh, well, it seems to me that the gun rights crowd crowd is right. And then and then so but we're the ones, the gun rights crowd are the ones who get accused of being obsessed with guns. And sometimes I want to say, who's obsessed with guns? I mean, why is every single why is crime just a gun debate to you? Um, and not say in, in the drug war debate, which was there's not a single policy change that you could do that would do more to lower gun violence in this country than to end the drug war. And I think 
Few people would dispute that. Now, doing numbers on that is very difficult. Uh, you can because you have to come up with a sort of metric of what crimes are related to the drug war and how and how that's done. But but most people would agree with that, and that is a huge contributing factor in places like Detroit, uh, Chicago, Washington D.C., Baltimore. But but also on a on a bigger level that. When it comes to school shootings, for example, I'm currently involved in a very deep dive into the history of school shootings, reading the journals of school shooters, trying to figure out what's going on with these school shooters. And, and it, it, it's really disconcerting to me that I'm pretty sure that there is no reasonable gun policy measure that you could pass to stop school shootings. I'm, I'm open to uh, the idea that gun policy can can affect crime on some marginal level. I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, we haven't. This is not a knockdown, drag out case. But when it's when we, when we talk about school shootings, and we think that the most motivated criminals who plan these attacks for years are going to be dissuaded by ten day waiting periods or or any sort of uh, you know prohibition on the current sales of say AR-15s. Well, I mean AR-15s there's probably eight million out there. We don't really know, but they're but in the gun stock right now. So if you're not going to confiscate them, who's going to find them? School shooters. These are the the sort of motif of these school shooters show that they are the hardest people to dissuade with something like a gun control policy. Nevertheless, after a school shooting, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about gun control. And the real cost on that is not is not so much you know I mean I'll, okay I'll admit let's just say we could uh, you know ban high capacity magazines and and you know make them all disappear then again when we talk about banning these things there's millions out there uh, would that affect school shootings I mean it might on the margins uh, when someone changes magazines that might on the margins affect something so we could talk for for years and years and put in a play to affect on the margins the, the rare instance where the difference between a 10 round magazine and a 20 round magazine might save one person's life if there's one second to make a magazine change although that's probably a very rare instance uh, we could talk about that and do a, put a lot of effort into doing something that would probably save no one's life or save very few lives or we could talk about something that's not just talking about guns we could talk about why these kids are doing this. What's happening in schools? Do we have a problem in schools themselves that are pushing kids of a certain ilk to be incredibly dissatisfied? Do we have a spate of what I call a crime script, right? Do we have a spate of something like serial killers in the 80s where, where there was a, a big media frenzy around serial killers and tons of TV movies about Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, which seemed to encourage other people to be serial killers who would get on the news because the media is championing it out. Out there so you have people sending you know serial killers you know sending cryptic messages to newspapers because they want to be famous and they want to be known and they and they feel good if everyone knows their name and do we have school shooters behaving in the exact same way and can we do something that is not gun control to stop these school shooters so you know to your broader question uh Who's obsessed with guns? Well, it seems to me increasingly the gun control crowd is obsessed with guns. Uh, violence is something different. I want to stop violence. I want to diminish it in the inner city. And any of the drug war would do more than any gun policy that could reasonably put in place. And I'd like to stop school shootings insofar as we're able to. And doing putting in programs to avert, to protect, to identify would do much better than any gun control that could possibly be passed. You know, most of our most of our listeners are probably in the gun the gun rights, uh, pro-gun ownership 
uh, camp. Um, even if they don't, you know, if they're like you and me who we don't really own guns, we don't have this affinity for them in, in a way that gets sort of caricatured online by the left. I want to talk about one issue and you can just briefly talk about it. We can move on to a couple other practical things is what do you think of the the argument that gun rights people will portray as a, hey, you know what, we have the Second Amendment because, you know, the founding fathers wanted the people to be able to band together to uh, defend against a tyrannical government. Uh, it seems to me that we're well past the ability for even the people who own guns to stand up against our government. Um, I, a few things on that. Uh, it's factually true. Um for the in, a, in a historical way, you mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's factually true, um, and it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not an irrelevancy to the Second Amendment now, and you know, the, the bringing up you know, the disarming of say Jews in the in the Holoc before the Holocaust and things like that is is relevant, but in my experience, if you're engaging in gun control discussions, uh, either on Facebook or you're doing professional gun control debates like I do, it is the the kookiest point uh, to the other side that it's it's really bad to lead with. Uh, that it doesn't make any sense. It makes you seem like you know uh, Timothy McVeigh or some Michigan mafia or David Koresh or Cliven Bundy or something, and and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, that being said, to your point about uh, the tyranny issue, I mean the, the ability to fight. The government issue, you know, how can someone with an AR-15 fight a F-16 fighter jet? I will say this: small groups of people uh, fighting with small arms against the U.S. government uh, in have proven to be pretty effective against the U.S. Army in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's not the case that armed populace can't stand up to the U.S. Army, uh, but but to that being said, I think it's a very unconvincing argument. I don't think it's the primary argument because when I say the primary argument for the right to keep and bear arms is the right to self-defense, which is the most core right you can possibly have. And that includes your government. So if if it comes to the point that, that cops are kicking down doors or something like that uh, and, and, and people are defending themselves from cops, which let's be honest, like uh, cops are a problem, um, you know, it might be a better argument. But right now, it doesn't make any sense to to the gun control crowd. So what gives you hope with this sort of debate? I mean, are there there are things that you're studying, things that you're uh, seeing as coming? You know, maybe it's technology, maybe it's certain uh, clever ideas in terms of uh, gun policy and jurisdictions. I mean, what what kind of gives you hope that maybe we can reduce gun violence? And I don't mean just gun violence. We can talk about the whole crime issue in 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 particular, um, but I'll let, just let you speak on, you know, things that you look forward to maybe coming true and, and helping solve this problem. Violence is, is the sort of problem in society that, that uh, people in um, in Western rich nations you know, often don't have to deal with. And the great fact of humanity, one of the you know, two, two great facts are you know, the, the reduction in poverty especially since the early 80s and the reduction in crime in, across the Western world down by about 49 percent since 1993. Uh, and to me that there might be some reasons to think that trend might go up a little bit. It has gone up a tad in the last couple of years, but there might be some reason I think overall there's reasons to believe that it will continue to go down. Um, now that being said, the great mystery, 
of why the crime rate fell and not just fell in the United States, but fell across the world is still being discussed. There's a recent book that came out uh, on this subject um, that it's still being discussed about what caused the crime rate to go down. And some of it might be in some places, private gun ownership. Uh, but I, I don't think it's the biggest contributor to it. Um, so my hope is that crime will continue to go down as guns continue to go up. And uh, and I th- and I think that will happen. And so, but that doesn't mean that the gun control debate will will sort of cease because it, it just simply will not. That that you know when you have people saying you know one one school shooting is too much or or things like this, uh, one school shooting is enough to justify you know banning an entire category of weapons or confiscating the entire category of weapons without looking at the broader picture of whether or not it will affect anything or whether you know have negative effects or all. Like when you have people saying that, then then you can't really sort of point out that the crime rate's going down. Like there's still people dying, but the crime rate's going down. So, you know, be optimistic about living in a better world. And so I, I don't really know much how to, how to reason with those people. Um, I, I don't see the debate itself getting better. Uh, it, although interestingly, the overall debate about guns <clears throat> has changed a lot in this country. We had a pretty high percentage of people in 1959, there was a survey that had 75% of people thinking that handguns should be banned. And there used to be a huge movement to ban handguns. Um, then the places like uh, uh, the Brady campaign used to be called Handgun Control Inc. Uh, <clears throat> the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence used to be called the National Coalition to Ban Handguns. Uh, there was a much broader support for gun control just 30 years ago than there is now. So that is getting better, I think, where it it is i don't know it's heartening i mean like when school shootings happen and nothing and nothing is done when when people complain that you know why don't we just do something about this uh that onion article that gets shared every time on facebook of uh there's nothing to do anything about this says only nation where anything like this happens uh which is just false school shootings happen uh all over the world and all over the western world uh but it, i think people are realizing when it comes to school shootings that gun control is not the answer to that and uh and therefore maybe we could have a conversation if we start to realize that school shootings you know we should attack them in different ways we should try to identify shooters earlier we should protect schools in different ways then maybe we can say well this is how you stop school shootings now what about the larger gun violence debate and maybe then we could have a debate about the drug war or policing practices in inner city, which themselves are incredibly problematic uh, because police either over-police or under-police different areas. And so people buy guns for self-protection when they don't think the police are going to protect them. This is a, a discussion that doesn't often get had, where when people feel like the police are either a problem because they might attack them or they're not policing them, then they're buying guns for their own protection. And some of those guns might eventually be used in crime. These kind of things for the broader discussion of why people die of gun violence in this country would be much more beneficial than having some sort of obsessive focus on guns. I wonder if we can tie this also in some way to the issue of property rights. So, you know, being libertarian, most of our audience would would probably agree with both the fact that individuals have the right to to purchase firearms, but also that property owners have the right to uh, prohibit firearms or knives or anything else on their on their premises. So maybe this is a, a, a seem like a bit far-fetched or, or a little techno-futurist, but what do you think the prospect is for innovation, entrepreneurs, technological development to 
create a, a situation in which property owners actually have reliable methods to keeping uh, weapons of any type off, off their premises. And maybe in that sense, it could actually uh, re reduce instances of mass shootings where people are sort of corralled into these tiny spaces because there's some sort of technological capability that reliably verifies that people aren't bringing in the, these weapons to do that. Is that something that, that you think could happen? So, I mean, I'm, I'm way into the techno-futurism kind of discussions, and, and uh, I think that those are exciting possibilities that, that I mean, has, has been pointed out many times before where uh, just declaring something a gun-free zone is, is problematic if you don't do anything except for put up a sign. Uh, but making something an actual gun-free zone, such as a courthouse uh, or maybe an airport to some extent, uh, that reduces gun violence in that place um and and, and that's sort of i mean it's, that's sort of the conundrum we have in society that we we can't make united states into an actual gun-free zone but we can make different subsections of the united states into gun-free zone and, and i want to by the way as a side i want to point out uh you know that uh i understand that guns have the ability to kill more people and do more harm and be more lethal than other methods of violence and if you gave me a magic button and could make every gun disappear, including from the government, I would push that button. Uh, and then everyone would have to do knife attacks, which would be preferable to gun attacks. But of course, we don't live in that world. But can we make little places where, where guns aren't allowed? Yeah. And, the, and that's a technological problem. It's also an entrepreneurial problem where if people really want to go to a college or something like this where they don't want any guns and they want the college to guarantee in some way through some technology that there won't be any guns and if someone walks on to the through the barrier or whatever that it will it will identify them as guns and there it's a private property situation then i don't really have that big a problem with it i mean we could talk about the nature of the second amendment and public universities but i'm feeling free right now to uh, be a full techno futurist and imagine no public universities all private universities no public schools all private schools and the ability to make your school a gun school or not school and the corollary technology to sort of enforce that so yeah that that's the kind of thing where you know it's maybe an entrepreneur or someone can figure out how to do that if people people so demand well i i kind of share both of your optimism in a sense uh and maybe it will become uh I don't know. This this is kind of a this would be kind of cool if the future of gun of safety and lowering of violence uh, came by entrepreneurs who were in favor of gun rights uh, instead of the obsessed uh, gun control <laughs> advocates. So maybe that's maybe that's where the solution will come from. People who are actually in favor of more guns. Um, well, I guess yeah. I guess time will tell. That, uh, thank you for being on the show with us, Trevor. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christians.